but if when you guys get there to Matthew 3, if you guys could stand with me for the reading of God's word. Okay, Matthew 3, verse 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Providence. Hey, you guys are not as pepped up as I thought you would be, given that we are back in our facility now. Uh, that sounded a little bit better, but it also sounded a bit contrived, so but I'm not going to judge you. Hey, my name is Joseph. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, I serve on staff here at Providence. And uh, uh, if you are a first-time guest with us um, and you're thinking, you know, what's, the, what's all the hubbub about? Well, we have been out of our facility. We have been temporarily displaced for the past three months, and so today is our first Sunday back. And uh, before I really get into the sermon, I want to just take this time to thank Everyone that um, really stuck it out with us in this season of transition and difficulty because uh, our, our church experienced, I don't think, no little amount of turmoil and trial during the season being out of this facility uh, while we were having to gather in the evenings. And so just the very fact that you're here this morning gathering with us, I want to thank you for that. Uh, also want to take this time, and we'll do this probably more fully in our next members meeting. I want to take this time to just thank everyone that worked really hard to ensure that we could get back into this facility as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, which includes everyone on our elder team, all five of our current active elders. Um, and I, I could list them all out by name, but I won't. And just say that we worked hard as a team uh, to get into here. And uh, it was really more challenging and difficult than we thought it was going to be. Um, but nonetheless, we are here. And uh, if you look above you, you can see the fruits of our being out of here for three months in the sprinkler system that, and fire alarm system that surely if there is a fire anywhere in this building, not only are we going to know about it, but we are all going to be swimming our way out of here. Um, so no need to worry about your clothes catching fire because I trust you, you will be, trust me, you will be drenched completely. And so we're grateful to be in a facility that is actually finally up to code. Um, and so thank everyone that worked hard. Thank you uh, to men like Rod Staggs, and I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing right now because I'm going to miss somebody. Thank you to men like Rod Staggs. Thank you to men uh, like Chris Rayburn who came up here and, and devoted their time. Uh, thank you to men like Donovan Schreiber who has um, built our, him and Chris have started to build our new stage design. This is not done yet. It's going to span the whole wall. But thank you to all of the people that have come up here and, and just donated time uh, to see to it that we would get back in here. Thank you to Chris Bordelon who painted the floors out there. Thank you um, to everyone that came up here and served during our work day and things like that. Um, it's good to be back in our facility and uh, it's good to be back into a normal rhythm of gathering on Sunday mornings. And so, um, like I said, there will be more thank yous to come at our elder at our next members meeting, but just wanted to acknowledge those few things uh, before, we, before we get in. So every time I stand up and preach, I say, you know, no matter if you're a Christian, uh, not sure you're a Christian or sure you're not a Christian, our prayer is always the same, and that is that as we proclaim God's word to you, that you would hear it clearly, and that God, through his word, by his spirit, would convict your heart and show you the beauty of Christ. And so would you guys please join me in praying to that end? Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning. As always, we want to humble ourselves in your sight and come before your throne recognizing, God, that we are needy and we are desperate for you to work in our midst through your word, by your spirit, God, that you would make your son Christ Jesus and the life that he has for us on offer desirable to our hearts this morning. Father, please don't let us come into this room with low expectations and leave the same Father, I pray that you would do an intervening work by the power of the Holy Spirit and transform us through the hearing of your word. God, convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. Comfort our hearts where we need to be comforted. Most importantly, exalt your son, Christ Jesus, and edify your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Okay, so today we are finishing up our series on the Holy Spirit. As Eric said earlier, we've been in a sermon series called The Power of the Presence of People of God. 
Um, and we have been looking at the role of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And today, we are finishing that sermon series, and we are finishing it on uh, Pentecost Sunday. Okay, and today, if you didn't know that and you don't pay attention to the church calendar, today is Pentecost Sunday, which means 50 days after uh, the resurrection of Christ. And historically, this is a day that the church has celebrated um, as a day in which God fulfilled his promise to send the Holy Spirit to his people, to baptize them in the Holy Spirit, and to empower them. And so we thought, what a more fitting day to end. There wouldn't be a more fitting day to end this sermon series than on Pentecost Sunday, and there wouldn't be a more fitting day to talk about what does it mean to be empowered by the Spirit than on Pentecost Sunday. And so that's what we're going to talk about. That's how we're going to cap off the sermon series. Today, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to live the Spirit-filled, the Spirit-empowered life. All right? Are you guys with me? What does it mean to live the Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered life? Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this now, so that way I don't have to qualify it later if I forget to say it, really. I, I, I want to say it now. This is going to be one of those sermons, if I actually stick to my notes, and I think I'm faithful to what God has given me, this is going to be one of those sermons that will likely begin to dislodge some things in your life that I think probably need to be dislodged. Some practices, some habits, some attitudes, some outlooks, some worldview, if you will, that will likely challenge you. And uh, I hope, by God's grace, that you hear this as coming from the Word of God and not from the Word of Joseph Turner. Uh, this, the ground that I stand upon as a man is, is uh, fleeting, shallow, and weak ground, but the ground that I stand upon up here that is Scripture, I hope you see is substantial, life-changing, and eternal. And so I pray that everything that you hear this morning you, you can see is coming from the very Word of God and uh, I am just a messenger to that end. But the reason that I say that I think that this, ha this has the potential to dislodge some things in our lives is because the account that we're going to read about in the book of Acts here in a moment of the Holy Spirit coming and descending upon God's people and empowering them and animating them and giving life to their souls and life to their bodies created this radical and transformative new way of living that I think is countercultural, counterformative, and counterintuitive to the way that we live today to the way that most of us, the baseline narrative that most of us live according to, often does not reflect the things that we read about here in Scripture. And so, as I was preparing the sermon, I couldn't help but be challenged. And I know you, in hearing the sermon, probably aren't going to be able to help but be challenged as well. But before we get into Acts, I wanted to start in Matthew 3, because I wanted us to see that before Jesus even steps onto the scene and begins his earthly ministry. A man named John the Baptist, who is called by Scripture the front-runner, the forerunner of Christ, goes before Christ, and he comes with this message to the people of Israel at that time. He comes with this message of repentance. And he says, you need to repent of your sins, and you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. And so that's what John the Baptist is doing. As you read about in, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is down in the River Jordan and he is baptizing people in the baptism of repentance. But one of the peculiar things that John says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this is John's job is to basically prepare the way for Jesus. And he says, here's what Jesus is going to do. I'm baptizing you guys in water, and that baptism is signaling repentance. Jesus is going to come, and he will baptize you with fire. And that fire is going to signal what? On verse 12, we get a, get a little glimpse into what he means by fire. In verse 12, it says, His winnowing fork is in hand... And he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So what kind of baptism is Jesus coming with? He's coming with this baptism of fire, and it is a fire that is going to consume. Now listen, it is going to consume all that is not built upon the promises of God 
A life that is not built upon the promises of God, walking in the power of God, lived in the presence of God, the baptism of the Holy Spirit will consume that and burn it all up. But it says that the wheat, those that, those that, <laughs> those that are in Christ, they will be saved. The baptism that Jesus comes with is a baptism, listen, that is going to separate believers from non-believers. And the way in which we are going to be baptized with this baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to make it abundantly clear who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. That this baptism that Jesus is coming with, this baptism of fire, will make it unmistakably, remarkably clear those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit is going to distinguish God's people from those who are not God's people. There should be a radically different way of living for the people of God than those who are not the people of God. And the baptism that Jesus is coming with, this baptism in the Holy Spirit in fire, is, is, is signaling not just repentance, but new life. Now, I'm going to say this again now before I forget to say it later because I know that I didn't write it in my notes. The reason that this is going to be challenging for us is because many of us in this room that were raised in a Christian context or a Christian subculture, or many of you that were even raised Christian, maybe you became a Christian at a young age, you can't remember a time when you weren't a Christian, is that oftentimes we will bank our eternal security in Christ upon an experience, a one-time experience of repentance. We were saved at a youth camp, we'll say. Or maybe we were saved at a young age at a VBS. Or maybe we were saved um, after we uh, you know, were, were teenagers in our, in our young 20s or something like that. Maybe that's whenever we believe the Lord saved us and so we repented and we were baptized. Or, or maybe we were saved, some of us had served time or something like that. And some of you are like, whoa, some people in here served time. Yes, um, served time. And, 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 and we were saved in a prison ministry and, and we were baptized there. Or, or whatever your experience might be, we have, this, we have this moment where we look to and we say, that's whenever I know that the Lord saved me because that's when I repented and I was baptized. And so we will look back to our baptism or we will look back to that initial time of repentance and we will bank our eternal security on that one moment of baptism and repentance and baptism. But I'm, go I'm going to show us today that we are not safe banking our eternal security on a one-time experience of repentance and the symbol that baptism is meant to be or the sacrament that baptism is supposed to be to us. So John is pointing to a day in redemptive history, in the redemptive history of Israel, that they both looked to and longed for. It was going to be this day whenever God sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in them and to baptize them in power to live the life that he had called them to live. So if you turn with me now to the book of Acts chapter 1, uh, we're basically going to skip through the entire life and ministry of Jesus. Not that it's inconsequential, we'll actually hit that at the end. But we're going to skip through the entire life and ministry of Jesus. So in skipping from Matthew chapter 3 to Acts chapter 1, I want you to know that we're we are legitimately skipping everything that Jesus said and did up until uh, the point where he's about to ascend into heaven. So we're, you know, we're skipping over all of the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the interactions of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And now we are getting to this point where he has now appeared to his disciples again after his resurrection and he is giving them a word before he ascends into heaven. And actually, I said Acts chapter 1, I don't know if I said verse 8, but we're going to start in verse 1, Acts chapter 8, or Acts chapter 1, sorry, verse 1, all the way through verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, and this is the, the, uh, the man Luke wrote the book of Acts. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And I don't have time to get into all of that, but that is a very important question they were asking him in that moment. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, and when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. Now what's happening here is right before Jesus ascends as he is giving his disciples a promise. And that promise is that they are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they are going to be given the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is going to empower them. The reason that I said that the question that they ask about whether or not he's going to restore to them the kingdom of Israel at that time is an important question because in their entire history, here's what they believe. They believe that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to come and he is going to reign and rule as a righteous king and he is going to smite all of God's enemies, all of the enemy nations that had oppressed his people and he is going to reign and rule in power and glory with authority. And so the, the disciples out of sheer innocence, but also ignorance, are also are asking this question, but it's a good question. Okay, Jesus, is this the time now that you are going to restore to us the kingdom of Israel? In other words, is this the time that you are going to eradicate Jerusalem of the Romans? Is this the time in which you are going to exert your power and your might into the world, and you are going to reign and rule as the righteous, true king of all? Is this the time? And Jesus responds to their, to their question, not directly, but indirectly. He essentially says, this is the time that I'm going to restore the kingdom, but I'm not going to do it with power and might, and I'm not going to do it directly. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to empower you to live as my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the, world, ends of the earth. So in other words, what Jesus says is, I am going to establish my kingdom, but I'm going to do it through witnesses, through ambassadors, through people that are, are, are engaged in this mission of going and advancing the kingdom in everyday, ordinary life. I'm going to extend my reign and rule through you guys. But listen, I'm not going to send you out there as my ambassadors on your own. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to baptize you in power. I'm going to give you that thing that you need most in order to represent me the best. And that is the Holy Spirit. You will receive power, in verse 8 he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Another word for witness is representative. You will represent me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, in the ends of the earth. And it says that whenever he was lifted, they're all looking in heaven kind of dumbfounded. And I think I would be too, right? If Jesus just all of a sudden on a cloud just kind of went up to heaven, I think we would all rightly just kind of be like, whoa, what just happened? But as they're sitting there in wonder, they're like, okay, he's gone, now what? There are two angels that come to them and say, what are you doing just sitting there? Didn't Jesus promise you something? Go get about it. So what do they do? Then they go and they gather. This is 40 days after Jesus rose. They go and it says that they gathered for 10 days in a prayer room called the upper room and they prayed and they waited and they tarried just like Jesus told them to and they, at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem until you are filled with power from on high. So, so Jesus left, so they're like, okay, now what do we do? I guess we need to go and we need to have a 10-day long prayer meeting waiting for the spiritual power to come. And that's what they did. And they prayed and they waited and they longed. And then all of a sudden, 10 days later, we read an account, and I don't have time to read 
all of it, but we read an account in Acts chapter 2, and I, again, I'm not, I'm not going to read this part just for the sake of time. In Acts chapter 2, it says that they were all gathered in a room together, and then all of a sudden, like a mighty rushing wind came and filled the entire house where they were sitting, and it says, and divided tongues of fire sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That promise that Jesus had held out to them, that baptism of fire and power had finally come upon them. And listen, if you've been around for this sermon series, you know that this is no little promise. This is that which was promised to them by the prophet Ezekiel whenever he said that God is going to put his spirit within you. He's going to write his law on your hearts. He's going to make you new. This is that promise. This is that promise that was prophesied by Joel, where it says, In the last days it shall be God declares that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh, that sons and daughters will prophesy, that young men will dream dreams and have visions, right? This is that day that had long been promised in the Old Testament by the prophets, whenever God's spirit, his power, his presence would come and baptize and fill his people and animate them and give them new life and give them the power to live the life that they had not had before. This day had finally come upon them. This day of power. Jesus promises them not just that the Spirit would come upon them and give them help, although he did promise that in John chapter 16. Not just that he would give them comfort, although he did promise that. Not just that he would give them wisdom, although he did promise that. Not just that he would give them assurance, although he did promise that, all of these things that we've talked about with the Holy Spirit. Not just that the Spirit would give assurance, not just that the Spirit would seal, not just that the Spirit would adopt, not just that the Spirit would reconcile, not just that the Spirit would apply the atoning work of Jesus to our lives, but that the Spirit would give us power. The Greek word Power here is a different word that's used oftentimes in the New Testament. It is the word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. He would give us power, explosive, transformative power. Power to live the new life. Power to live the Christian life. Jesus was giving his disciples power. He wasn't going to send them out in the world to be his ambassadors to extend his reign and rule through a spiritual kingdom by just giving them a little bit of help or a little pat on the back. He was going to come and consume them in spiritual power. Friends, do we walk in that kind of power? Do you think your life is characterized by power? No, my life, is, my life is characterized by weakness. You know what? That's actually good. Because weakness is the beginning to accessing that power. But the kind of power that God comes to give us is accessed through our weakness and our understanding that we need it. And the kind of power that he comes to give us keeps us dependent upon him. But listen, when the Spirit comes, He's going to give us power. But power for what? Power to be successful? Power to live our best life now? Power to get the job that we've always wanted? Power to, you know, secure a 401k and have a decent retirement? Power to, like, get our kids through school without them backsliding? Like, power to, right? What's He, what's he giving us power for? What is the spiritual power for that Jesus promises? It's power to be his witnesses. And Jesus said in another account of this very same thing to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, whenever he says, I'm, gonna, I'm giving you all, he says, I have all authority. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth, Right? That's Matthew's account of what's being said here in, in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus gives this promise that he is going to be with us. Have you ever noticed that Jesus' promise to be with us is directly related to the task that he gave us? He gave us this task to go and make disciples and he promises to be with us in what? Making disciples. Jesus promises to give us power, but he gives us power to do what? To be his witnesses, to do his work, to be about his mission. 
You see, Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was filled to overflowing with the power and presence of God in his life. He was the fullness of the Godhead, dwelt bodily in Christ, right? But he was filled with the Spirit's power so that he could do the work of his Father. We are filled with the Spirit's power so that we could do the work of our Father. He gives them power to be his witnesses. Now, again, this is a staggering and an incredible claim. Because in the Old Testament, we see that God gave his people his word. Right? He gave them the Torah. He gave them the law. And he gave them his word. And after he delivered them to the word, he called them to worship and to walk in a specific way. But listen, word, worship, walk. God delivers his word. Here's how I want you to worship me, and I want you to walk in this manner. I want you to worship me in a way that signals to the rest of the world that I am God and God alone, and I want you to walk in a way that signals to the rest of the world that I am God and God alone. And I'm going to give you my word, which is going to govern and guide that for you. Everyone with me? This is how the children of Israel had been living all the way up until this point. And so what is so spectacular about what Jesus is promising here is that God had called them all along to be his people, to be governed by his word, to worship him, and to walk according to his precepts. God had called them to that their entire redemptive or their, their entire history and throughout the entire redemptive historical narrative. That's how the people of God were called to live their lives. But listen, God gave in the Old Testament his word and he gave them a specific way to worship and a specific way to walk so that they would be his witnesses. Even in the Old Testament, the word worship and walk was all so that the people of God would be his witnesses, that they would be a light to the nations, that the nations would look into the life of the children of Israel and they would say, what a mighty, spectacular, wonderful God they serve. That's in Deuteronomy, right after the law was given. God says, I'm delivering the law to you so that whenever people look at how you live, they will worship and exalt me. So listen, even in the old covenant, the word was given. Principles for worship were given. A, a standard of living was laid out, but that was all so that the people of God would be God's witnesses. In the New Testament, now the Holy Spirit is poured out. And according to that promise in Ezekiel, the Spirit is given so that the word would be written on our hearts and so that we would now have the power to walk according to how God has called us to walk. And so God gives us in that instance, in the filling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he gives the children of Israel all three of those things all at once. The word written on their heart, the power to walk out the new life, right? He fills them with his presence, which was at that point in that time the center of their worship. Now he says, the very thing that you have gathered your worship around, I am putting inside of you. This incredible Old Testament promise comes alive just like that in the people of God. But it's for what purpose? To be his witnesses. What I want us to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is that being a Christian, you being a Christian is about you being a witness. You being a Christian is about you being an ambassador. You being a Christian is about being God's representative. You being a follower of Christ is being an ambassador for Christ. Those two things cannot be separated, and when we try and separate them, we fall off into a realm of spiritual stagnancy and complacency and everyday metronome sameness where our days just kind of bleed together and we're like why is life so boring I thought God promised us more than this and the reality is he has but the problem is we're not walking in the things that he's called us to walk in we don't need his power because we're not doing what he's asked us to do he's given us power to walk in this world as his witnesses Jesus promises. He gives a spectacular promise that humanity is made to worship and walk with God. And now he's giving us his word and his spirit. The spirit is going to write the word of the law on our hearts. And as I said earlier, in every sense of the word, this is a spectacular promise that is coming to fulfillment here. Jesus is promising that he's going to plunge his disciples into his power and fill them with his presence. 
But what does that power look like on the ground? I don't want to stay up in the clouds too long. What does it look like on the ground? How are we doing on time? We're okay. We're okay. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. And this is after the Holy Spirit's poured out and after um, some pretty spectacular things begin to happen. Peter comes out of the upper room filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches this sermon, this really convicting sermon in which he tells essentially all who were in attendance outside of the upper room that were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. He tells them to repent. And he tells them to repent. Why? Because they were the ones who crucified and killed Jesus. They were the ones who were responsible for the death of Christ. And so essentially he's saying, you didn't see a good thing. You didn't see the greatest thing whenever he was standing right in front of you. And so for that, you need to repent. But I want us to see what this new life of power looks like on the ground. So in verse 37, it says, Peter, now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So in other words, Peter's sermon seemed to have an impact and an effect on them. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brother, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God, our, our, the Lord, our, the Lord our God calls to himself, sorry. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this just went from a movement of about 120 people to around 3,120 people in one sermon. Peter went from being a, a member of a small community church to all of a sudden being the senior pastor of a megachurch in one minute. Like, just like that. That would be, just so you know, as a pastor, something to celebrate, but then also it would be an immediate logistical nightmare. Because in America, you know what we say? We've got 3,000 people. How do we organize them all into small groups? Not only that, who's going to be the small group leaders? They're all baby Christians, Right? And even the 120 that had been there praying for 10 days weren't on solid ground themselves because many of them just 40 days before that were doubting Jesus. Peter had just run like a little scared girl for his life because he didn't want to be identified with Jesus just 50 days before. So it's not like these, these men and these women that were constituting that core team of 120 were the most solid, faithful believers themselves. So you have this radically immature new church that is formed without a great deal of spiritual maturity and spiritual wisdom to lead them. And so, and, and again, notice Jesus didn't go and he didn't go and pick the scribes. He didn't go and pick the Sadducees or the Pharisees to be his disciples. He picked fishermen. He picked tax collectors. He picked everyday average blue collar Joes to be his so these aren't even men that like have a, a firm knowledge of the Torah. They have a, a working knowledge of the Torah as the children of Israel, but they weren't by any means scholars. And so these, these brand new men and women are now called to lead a brand new church. And so me, if that happens in one day, if Providence grows from a couple hundred people to 3,000 people, praise God for that. But I'm immediately thinking like, oh my gosh, how do we organize them into small groups? We don't have enough people to teach. We don't have enough people to do that. We don't have enough space. We got to do this. We got to do that, right? And so... Like, you immediately start to think about how to organize all of the chaos because here's what I know about leading groups of people in our culture. For Christians in our culture, it's like hard to get people to live the spiritual life unless you absolutely show them every single step of how they're supposed to live the spiritual life. And then, even then, whenever you show them how to live the spiritual life, they still don't want to live the spiritual life, the Christian life, because it costs too much, it's not convenient, it is 
a drain on their finances, it's a drain on their time, it's a drain on their energy. And so if I were to have this experience right now in Atascacita, Texas, I would be completely overwhelmed because I'd be like, oh my gosh, these people are not only going to want home groups, they're going to want home groups to look like this and this and this. And they're not only going to want discipleship programs, they're only going to come to the discipleship programs if they're like this and this and this. And they're not only going to want worship gatherings, they're only going to come to the worship gatherings if they've, got, if they've got coffee and it's at a certain time and it's this and this and this, right? So I would be almost immediately overwhelmed because I'm thinking, about the kinds of Christians we would have to lead in our culture just to get them to live faithfully to what Jesus had called them to. But I don't think that there's much of that anxiety going on in Peter because what just happened is these men and women were so consumed with the power and the presence of God that they instinctively start to do things that many of us find nearly impossible to do. What kind of things were they doing? Let's keep reading. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Check this out. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These newly baptized believers were filled with these instincts that were given to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these instincts, could, there are many, but they could probably be categorized in three different ways. Number one, they were characterized with a sincere devotion. In verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, the word devotion there is not just like quiet time devotion, okay? Um, the, the word devotion there actually means something much deeper. It means like a comprehensive deep, life-taking, life-risking type of devotion. There was this devotion that actually consumed their very lives. And what were they devoted to? The apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they almost instinctively and immediately were filled with the sincere devotion to the Word of God with the sincere devotion to breaking bread and praying with one another. They were filled with this ongoing, committed devotion to the Word of God and the sacraments that God had given to the church. They were filled with devotion. The next thing that they were filled with was this seeming un unwavering joy. Verse 43, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I'm going to skip down to verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, could you imagine, just for a second, if you were a part of this movement, and then all of a sudden you're a Christian, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and, and all of a sudden, all the people that have kind of experienced that with you are starting to gather together in such a way that you're gathering together day by day. You're attending church. That's what they were doing when it says they were attending the temple. Day by day, you're attending church services. And day by day, after that church service is done, you go home and you have church even longer. Like, like okay, church was great at the temple. Let's go home and keep it going, guys. Let's break bread and pray and, 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 and share and, and give of one another's goods. And, and you have need? Okay, here's a check. Let me, let me meet that need for you. Oh, wait, I don't have the money. Let me sell something of my own to get you the money, right? Just a little caveat. Something remarkable about what's happening here is they're not giving to one another out of what they have. They're giving to one another out of what they don't have. They're not saying I've got $500 in savings, here's $100. they are saying I'm going to clear out my savings account and I'm going to sell my car and I'm going to make sure that you have what you need. Incredible generosity. But this isn't a draining generosity. This is a joy-filled generosity. This is an awe-and-wonder generosity. This is a praising God and having favor with everyone in the community type of generosity. This is a kind of generosity that if we're honest, if we're honest, is hard to reckon with. It's hard to reconcile in our own lives. How could you be that generous? 
They had this joy. The third thing that they had is they had this sense of holistic mission, it seems. There was a deep and ongoing commitment to meet the needs of one another and their neighbors. Let me put it this way. Mission wasn't a program. It was a lifestyle for them. They didn't have a missions department as the church. The church was a mission. It was church as mission, not church with a mission, church as mission, life as mission, not life with a mission, life as mission. It says day by day they were doing these things. Day by day they were meeting each other's needs. Day by day they were having favor with those who were outside. Day by day they were living and walking in such a way that God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So not only do you have the initial 3,120 that have become Christians You have the 3,120 plus people getting saved every single day. The church is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And this continues to perpetuate itself. This is a mighty move of the Spirit of God. So they had this sincere devotion, this unwavering joy, this sense of holistic mission. But what about us? We're Christian, right? Many of us, some of us not. Some of us not sure. We're Christian. Is this what our lives look like? At least one of us in the room is like, maybe. Probably the rest of us are being really honest with ourselves and just saying, no. Like me, myself, up here as a preacher. Like, no, this is not what my life looks like. My days bleed together with just boringness. You're like, is being in ministry boring? Yes, it's boring. Okay, it's boring. Just as boring as almost anything else you could do. It's boring. Just boringness. Just boring. Metronome sameness. My days kind of bleed together. Like the highlight of my day, which is not a bad thing, is coming home at 4 5 o'clock every day and just getting down on the ground and playing with my son Jude and, and making sure that Eli finishes his homework. Then I play with Eli, right? Um, so this is like kind of the, the, the nature of my life. And then maybe some evenings I have meetings or things like that. And, but I mean, this kind of spiritual power I don't think characterizes my everyday life. I don't think it characterizes the community that I belong to. I don't think it characterizes my home group. I don't think it characterizes our church. So the question we're left to ask ask ourselves then, if not, then why? Is it because this was only a one-time event that Pentecost can't be repeated? Is it because this was, and in one sense, Pentecost certainly can't be repeated. It was a one-time event. But the, the power of the Spirit, can it only be repeated once? No, we know that. That's why we went through the sermon series on revival at the beginning of the year. We know that the Holy Spirit can and does still pour himself out in ways that are powerful, miraculous, and transformative instantaneously. But why, though, if this power is made available to to us, do so little of us walk in it? Jared Wilson says that we have... In his book, Supernatural Power for Everyday People, he says that he basically diagnoses some of this. He says, we have three selves that we live according to. Three selves. We have our spiritual self, our normal self, and our recreational self. We're divided people. Our spiritual self is that person that shows up to church on Sunday, that drags our kids there with us, Our spiritual self is the person that shows up to home group every other week and drags our kids there with us there. Our spiritual self is the one that makes us get up early for some of us and read our Bible and pray. Our spiritual self is the one that makes us do spiritual things. Then we have our normal self. Who is our normal self? Our normal self is the person that goes to work, that gets the kids ready for school or teaches the kids at school. Our normal self is the the person that pays the bills, that cooks the meals, that tries to exercise and stay healthy. Then we have our recreational self. Who's that? Our recreational self is the one that binge watches Netflix, that goes fishing and hunting, that takes vacations, that lays out by the pool, that just longs for a moment to be alone. It's our recreational self. Jared Wilson says the problem is that we are only living a one-third baptism. 
we have only baptized or allowed the Spirit to baptize one-third of our lives as opposed to the other two-thirds. We don't realize that whenever the Spirit comes to baptize, as He comes to baptize our whole life, our whole world is to be plunged in the power of the Spirit and to be lived in light of the presence of God. The problem is that we intentionally create sectarian borders in our lives to keep the Spirit's activity and operation away from our normal self and away from our recreational self because we actually believe that the Holy Spirit is a threat to those things. He's a threat to those things. What happens whenever the Holy Spirit invades your normal life? What happens when the Holy Spirit invades your recreational life? Your recreational life stops getting used for you and it starts getting used for the glory of God. Your normal self stops getting used for you and it starts getting used for the glory of God. Your whole life gets turned upside down and begins to get used for the glory of God. So what I need to do then is just keep the Holy Spirit on Sundays. Stay there, Holy Spirit. Stay there. Don't consume my life. Don't baptize every part of me. Only baptize the parts that I give you permission to baptize. And the rest, I want to keep to myself. Because I don't want to be going to church every day. I don't want to be breaking bread every day with other Christians. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. If we're honest, many of the reasons that we don't live out of the Christian life is not just because we don't think we can. It's because we don't really want to. We don't want to. And if we wanted to, then we would be on our knees every morning. God baptized this day in the power of your Holy Spirit. Every ounce of every second of everything that I have today, plunge in the power of your Spirit. Make me effective on the job today. Make me walk in power on the job today. Make me walk into that office with my wallet open, ready to give to any coworker that has need. Make me walk into the, into the parking lot, willing to meet anyone that has a need out there. Make me, make me um, sensitive to your spirit, God, whenever I see the homeless man on the corner or I see the man out there panhandling. Make me sensitive to your spirit in such a way that I will do whatever you call me to do, whenever you call me to do it, wherever you call me to do it, however you call me to do it. The problem is we don't want that kind of life. We want the cost efficiency and the comforts afforded to us by suburbia. That's what we want. But God wants more for us. And what I want us to see is the more that God wants for us is actually the better life. It's the better life. Living and walking, being spirit-empowered as witnesses of Jesus is the better life, friends. It is the better life. It is the life where there is more joy. The Bible says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Have you not seen that to be true even in small ways on Christmas morning whenever you get to see your children light up with joy because you gave to them? Even in small little minuscule ways, we can see that principle bear out. Why do we not then allow the Spirit of God to take that small principle and spread it out over the horizon of our entire lives and say, it is better to give than to receive. It is better to be filled with power and live in power than to be a consumer and to not give out of what has been freely given to you. I told you it would be challenging. So what do we need to do then? We need to ask, we need to beg, we need to plead for the Holy Spirit to fill us and to renew our hearts. We need to invite him to transform our everyday existence into demonstrations and displays of powerful Christian obedience. The problem is we may not want to, we may want our lives to stay the same, but being a follower of Jesus means that we accept the call of discipleship and we can't faithfully or follow Jesus without the power of the Spirit. And it's not that this spiritual power isn't available, friends. It's that we choose not to walk in it. We choose to walk in the flesh instead. So I'm going to call us to something that Peter called the children of Israel to. I'm going to call us to repentance. I'm going to call our church to repentance. On Pentecost Sunday, I think there's no more fitting way to spend it than to corporately say, God, we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to repent that we have relegated the power of your spirit to just a few little spiritual activities in our lives, and we have not allowed ourselves to be consumed by you. We need to repent. And we need to put our faith in Christ. 
Because Jesus said that it is a gift that he gives us, not something we earn. The spirit that is given is a, is a gift indeed. It is not something that we can earn, not something that we can unearn. It is something that we can receive and something that we can walk in, but we need to repent first. And so would we please, as I pray here in a minute, just take a moment to take stock of your life and be honest before the Lord and spend some time in repentance and prayer. And listen, don't allow your repentance to be that one-time event just like your baptism. Allow your repentance to be active and ongoing. Allow it, just like the Spirit's presence in your life, to be something that is happening every day, every moment of every day. We, we went into this sermon series asking, pleading, begging that God would transform our church into a church that is spiritually dependent, and I did not want to leave this sermon series and move on to the next thing this summer without saying, God, help us be spiritually dependent. Let me pray. Father, if we come before your throne of grace and we humble ourselves in your sight and we thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity to gather here. God, we need you so desperately to invade our lives this morning. Spirit, we ask that we would be filled again that you would fill our cup to overflow this morning with your presence and power, that you would consume our minds and our hearts and our hands, that you would give us a beautiful vision of what does it mean to follow you into dangerous places, God. You promised to be with us as we set out to be your witnesses and your ambassadors and your representatives. And so, God, we, we call upon you to make good on your promise to strengthen us and to sustain us and to empower us for the mission that you've called us to. And God, may that mission be comprehensive and holistic. May it fill every facet of our lives and our everyday existence, God. May we not live these divided lives with these divided selves, but may we be plunged wholly, completely, every day in the power of your Spirit. And may we live in joyful and humble obedience with unwavering joy in the fact, God, that it is truly more blessed to give. There's more of a blessing to give than it is to receive, and God, we can live in light of that, and we pray that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.